Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning just by reminding you of some headlines that I've read just in the last two weeks from the pages of the Cincinnati Inquirer. I read about a teenage boy who was arrested for sexually assaulting a teenage girl at a high school dance. I read about four teenagers who were sentenced this year on Halloween after last year on Halloween having shot an 80-year-old man who came to the door because he thought they were trick-or-treaters. I read about a priest who is dead after a night of drinking and gambling and then a one-car accident on I-75. I read about a 14-year-old boy whose mother, because she had seven other children, apparently pushed him out of the home. He resorted to stealing cars and was shot and killed by a person whose car he stole. Just read the headlines or just watch the news and any sensible person is going to ask themselves, why? Why is our world like it is? Why is our city like it is? Why have we come to this? What is the problem? Why are people so selfish? Why are people so violent? Why are people so cruel? How do we end up with a national leader soliciting homosexual sex from a child? How do we end up with this week a national evangelical leader, a pastor, buying drugs from a male prostitute and maybe worse? How did we end up where we are? How do we end up with a three-year-old tied up in a closet and left to die? What has happened to us? What is wrong with us? Whose fault is it? There are lots of answers that people give. Maybe it's the government's fault. Everything seems to be the government's fault these days. Maybe it's the public schools. Maybe we should blame it on the Internet. Maybe we should blame it on video games. Maybe we should blame it on gambling. But everybody knows there has to be some reason for the downward spiral that our country is in. And so the question is, what is the problem? What is going on in our world? When we look at the Bible, we find answers, don't we? No one seems to be looking here, but the answers are right here in the pages of the Scripture. The Bible tells us everything we need to know about the problems we're having. And we can learn a lot just by reading Genesis chapter 34 this morning. Here's a story that would fit well in today's headlines. Here's a story that reminds us that all the problems that we're having in 2006 aren't new problems. Just read chapter 34 along with me silently while I read aloud. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field where they heard it, and the men were grieved And they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. So they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed. I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? It's an amazing story, isn't it? This man apparently loves Dinah, quote unquote. So he rapes her. He can't have her in marriage, so he goes to his dad and gives his dad an ultimatum. Dad, you get me this girl for a wife. Then they go to Jacob's, Jacob and Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons act deceitfully and plot this revenge. You follow along the story, you find that the sons of Hamor and Shechem weren't all that great themselves. They were saying, listen, if we just do this, then we'll get all their stuff. Everything they have will be ours. And then Jacob's sons carry out their plan and then loot the city after they've killed all the men in it. This story, if you changed things like flocks, herds, and donkeys to stocks and bonds and investment accounts, could have taken place yesterday in Cincinnati. That's the kind of world that we live in. But there's nothing new under the sun. People were just as selfish, just as deceitful, just as cruel 5,000 years ago as they are today. And seeing that illustrated in this story this morning helps us put our finger on the problem in the 21st century. What's the problem in the 21st century? Well, what's the problem not? The problem is not public schools. The problem is not the government. 
The problem is not what's on the television or the Internet. The problem is not the gun laws. The problem is not poverty. Jacob's, Jacob's sons didn't experience any of those things. They didn't experience any of the things that we blame our cultural problems on. And yet, they committed crimes that could have been on the front page of this morning's inquirer. So what is the problem? What was the problem in Genesis chapter 34? And what's the problem in America that makes us look as a country so much like them? It's a simple answer. What's the one common denominator between Genesis 34 and 2006? People. The problem in Genesis 34 and the problem in 2006 is people. Simple as that. The problem is not that America is filled with guns and crooked politicians or pornography. All those things may be true, but those aren't the problems. The problem in America is that America is full of human beings. That's the problem. Wretched, miserable, sinful, self-centered, totally depraved human beings. America is filled with 300 million of these folks, you and I included among them, all of whom are capable of the grossest moral atrocities and most of whom don't know God. Genesis 34 illustrates the fact that anywhere, whether it be in, in Palestine 5,000 years ago, or whether it be in Cincinnati today, anywhere where the gospel is not preached and Christ is not treasured and God is not loved, people go haywire. Why? Because human beings are not basically good. Human beings, according to the Bible, are totally bad, sinful. Don't take my word for that. Just listen to what God says in Romans chapter 3. These are verses 10 through 18, speaking about humanity in general. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Someone may listen to that and say, well, pastor, that's an amazing verse to describe what happened with Jacob's sons in Genesis 34. That's great that you you tied that together with him. It's even a wonderful verse to describe some of the problems you you read from the Cincinnati Inquirer. This is a great passage to describe Marcus Faisal's foster parents. Wonderful. It is a great verse to describe that, isn't it? That's not all it's describing. It's describing you. And it's describing me. Paul's talking about humanity in general. You may say, well, I've never shed any blood. My feet aren't swift to shed blood. There is not destruction and misery in my past. My mouth isn't full of cursing and bitterness. Outwardly, maybe not. And if that's so, it's only by the grace of God that you haven't gone as far as you might. But the potential to become like Jacob's sons is present within us all. The problem in the world is that it's filled with sinful human beings. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter what we think about ourselves. The Bible gives us bare facts, and the Bible says there's nothing good in any of us. The Bible says that man's problem is man, and the story of Jacob's sons proves that. 
They never saw television violence. They never lived in a slum. They were not poor. Their parents did not abuse them, and yet they became mass murderers. Why is that? Because mass murderers is what they were by nature. Totally depraved human beings is what they were by nature. And that's what we are by nature. We are sinners. And every form of wickedness, there is a seed of it in our hearts. The seed of every kind of evil, the seed of every kind of deceit and selfishness and cruelty lives in our hearts. They don't always grow to full flower with every person, but the seed of all these things that they did live in our hearts. And if God pulled back his restraining grace on us for just 24 hours, we would do things that seem right now totally unthinkable. We would be the ones on the front page of the inquiry if God pulled back his grace completely from any one of us. There is a Tom Foley living in every person in this room. There is a David Carroll living in every person in this room. There is a Judas Iscariot living in every person in this room. And the fact that they remain hidden is only by the grace of God. Let me just try to help you see that that's true. Some of you have had a loved one maybe who's been raped like Dinah was raped. Or a loved one who has been abused or murdered. Some of you may have been the one who was raped or abused or murdered yourself. If that has happened to you or someone whom you love, if you've experienced it firsthand, you know what was going on in these men's minds and hearts. You know what it is like for your blood to boil. And if it weren't in those moments for your Christian faith or your moral upbringing or the fear of getting caught or the threat of punishment, there is no telling what you might have done in that instant where you were ready to cut somebody's head off. You ever felt that way? Most of us, it's not that complex. Most of us haven't had to have someone that we love dearly be violently hurt or killed before our blood boils. Most of us just have to have someone criticize us, cut us off in traffic, not like our ideas, call us a name, look at us funny, make us late, hit our car. That's all it takes for most of us for just for an instant our blood to boil and for angry words to fly and for fists to come down on the table and for things to be said that you can't take back that you wish you never said. It only takes a moment for our blood to boil and resentful, violent thoughts rise up in our hearts, even if only for an instant. But who's to say that one time when the blood boils and the thoughts rise in our hearts, that our pounding of our fist on the table won't be pounding of a weapon into the back of somebody's head. All of us are capable of doing what these men did. And a split second of anger or resentment or hatred that you feel when you get crossed is the exact same kind of hatred that these men felt when they murdered a whole village of people. Your anger just went away quicker. Or the thought of carrying it out just came with more repercussions than Jacob's sons had living in a kind of a lawless culture like they did. But in your heart and in my heart is the same venom that caused them to commit these murderous acts. I have the capability to commit murder just like these men did because by nature I am totally sinful. And apart from God's grace, that would show itself more than it does. The seeds of every kind of evil live in every human heart. 
I don't like to admit that any more than you do, but it is true. The Bible teaches it and the world illustrates it. The reason the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket is because the world is full of sinners like me and like you. That's our problem. And here's the worst part of it all. The worst part of it all is not that the world is crumbling down around us. The worst part of it all is that God sees what's going on. God sees what's happening in the very depths of your heart, even now. God knows everything about you. And if your sins never make their way to the front page of the inquirer, if your sins never become as heinous as Jacob's son's sins did, if you outwardly live your whole life as a moral, nice person, God still sees the blood boiling in your heart. God still sees the lustful looks and the lustful thoughts. God still sees the covetousness and the selfishness and the bitterness. God knows what is inside of us. And when God looks and sees what's really true of us, God's blood boils. And God is the only person whose blood boils and it's right. And that's what the Bible says. God knows us better than ourselves. And here's what he says about us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 God knows our murderous thoughts. He knows our idolatry. He knows our selfishness. He knows our conceit. He knows our godlessness. And he hates those domesticated, sophisticated sins just as much as he hates the mass murder of the sons of Jacob. If there's anything that I could get you to see from Genesis 34, it would be for you to recognize that we are all cut from the same tattered cloth as these murderous young men were. We are no different from them. The selfishness and the vengeance that lived in them lays like a cobra in all of us just waiting for a chance to strike. And but by the grace of God who restrains us and keeps us from doing what we might, we would all imitate them. Mankind is not by nature good. Mankind by nature is desperately sinful. And every single one of us is tarred with that brush. There are all sorts of applications that we could go to from here. One would be for us not to be so quick to criticize the people in the headlines, to pray for them and to realize that we're just like them. That would be one application that we're not going to delve into this morning. The main reason I spend all the time this morning reading you the bad news is for another purpose. Not popularity, by the way, because when a preacher preaches a message like this, contrary to what happens like on the news, when they give bad news, the ratings go up. When I give you bad news, my ratings go down, and I realize that. Um, so I'm not doing this to make you excited about me this morning. Why am I telling you all this bad news? Why am I telling you how bad you are and how bad I am? Well, one, because it's true. But secondly, because you'll ever, never understand the good news until you really see how bad the bad news is. Your flashlight never shines as bright as when you're in the pitch black of the woods at night. And the same thing is true of the gospel. The light of the gospel never shines so brightly as when we put it up against the backdrop of the pitch dark blackness of our sin. And there's good gospel news in chapter 35. Chapter 35 is amazing. But you might skim right over the good news that's happening in this chapter if you didn't see how sinful Jacob's sons really were and how sinful we really are in chapter 34. So with the backdrop of chapter 34, now let me read to you chapter 35 and you just listen for the good news that God gives to these men. 
Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Elan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. That she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, again, there's a lot here that we may not speak of, but I want just to show you how amazing chapter 35 is in just one way. After all the moral messiness of Jacob's life and after the bloodbath of chapter 34, God still blesses Jacob. Isn't that amazing? After all that Jacob had done, and now after all that his sons had done, God still blesses them. And what's most amazing to me is verse 12. In verses 9 through 12, God is reiterating his covenant promises to Jacob. 
The promises that came to Abraham and then were passed on from Abraham to Isaac. And now they're coming to Jacob. God is reminding Jacob of his own faithfulness. He is reminding Jacob, I made a promise to you, Jacob, and I will do what I said I will do. In verse 12, God is reiterating the specific part of the promise where he had promised Abraham and then promised Isaac and is now promising Jacob that he would give them the land of Canaan, the land that we know now as the nation of Israel. And when he makes that promise, he says these amazing words at the end of the verse. I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Are you kidding me, God? His descendants? You're going to give the land to Jacob's descendants? These dirty dogs who just slaughtered an entire village of men? These descendants of Jacob are going to be blessed by you? They deserve to fry, not to get a blessing. That's what you should be thinking right now. Most of you know where I'm going with this message, and so you might uh, tend to just kind of skip over how bad what's happening really seems here. But don't do that. Don't let the fact that you know where I'm going with this sermon keep you from being outraged initially that these mass murders would get a blessing. You just read this story pretending like you don't know what the ending is, And you should be outraged. Imagine you go home from church today and you find that everybody on your street has been slaughtered and their bodies are laying out on the front lawns. And on your front lawn sits a band of thugs waiting for their next victim. What kinds of things would happen in your heart? There would be fear, yes. There would be oh, I wish I'd brought my cell phone to church today because I'm in big trouble. But there would be, more than anything else, there would be anger in your heart. If you came home and everyone that you know on your street was dead and you saw the men who did it, you would be angry with them and you would wish that you had a baseball bat in your hand so that you could do to them something of what they had done to your neighbors and were planning on doing to you. That's what you would think. That's what I would think. That's what happened in this story. We should be outraged at what these men have done. We should be angry. We should be sick. The last thing that we would think of doing with those men would be to take them and buy them a new house in a nice area of town. But that's exactly what God promises to these men in verse 12, isn't it? I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to take you to the land flowing with milk and honey, you mass murderers, and I'm going to give it to you as a gift. We should be initially outraged at that. And it should create a problem in our minds because we know that God is supposed to be absolutely just. And here it seems that God is not only letting criminals off the hook, He is blessing them. And any sensible person who sees this story should be at least a bit puzzled and maybe even angry at the way God is acting here. Had we been the widows in the town of Shechem and the children who watched their fathers be slaughtered by these men, we would probably be tempted to shake our fists in God's face right now because when we compare chapter 34 with chapter 35, God seems completely unjust, doesn't He? But we need to make sure that we notice chapter 35, verse 1. Where God says to Jacob, Arise, 
Go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God. God didn't just let these criminals go free. The reason why Jacob had to build an altar was so that he could offer a sacrifice. God was requiring blood for blood here. A sacrifice, a death had to happen to atone for the sins of Jacob's sons. That's why Jacob had to build an altar in verse 1. So yes, Jacob's sons are allowed to go free here. And yes, they are blessed. But what's not happening here is it's not a God who is seeing how awful they acted and turning his head and pretending like it didn't happen because he likes them. God was violently angry with these men in chapter 34, just like he is violently angry with sinners today who continue in their sins and don't repent and put their trust in Christ. And God cannot turn his head towards our sin. He cannot just wink at it. He cannot pretend it didn't happen. He requires the death penalty. God is not a corrupt judge. He requires the death penalty for their sins and for ours. But in his mercy, God provides what his justice requires. His justice requires death and in his mercy, God provides someone to die in their place. And it ultimately wasn't the poor, unsuspecting sheep that Jacob laid on the altar to slay for his son's sin. Ultimately, the one God provided in their place was the one that the sheep foreshadowed, the one that the sheep pointed to. Every sheep that was ever slaughtered in the Old Testament pointed forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so God here is having Jacob build an altar to remind him and his sons that they deserve the death penalty and that God is providing someone else to take it for them, namely the Messiah that they were looking for who would come and take away the sins of the world by giving up his own life. That's what's happening in chapter 35. That's what we might miss if we're not reading carefully. It's only because of the impending death of Jesus that these bloody young men were allowed to go free. And it's only because of the death of Jesus that's now 2,000 years past that we are allowed to go free and be blessed by God. Someone has to die for our sins. And Jesus did it for us. Now just lay this story on top of your own story. And remember that you and I are just as guilty, just as deserving of death and hell as were Reuben and Judah and Simeon and these other men. And imagine what all of heaven, the angels particularly, must be thinking when they look down and see God letting us go free, like he let these men go free. All of heaven must be outraged. They might well be, I don't know if they are, but all of heaven might well be outraged to look down and see that God is letting blasphemous, murderous, selfish, hard-hearted, idolatrous sinners go free? What are you doing, God? What are you doing, heaven must think? We are as repulsive in heaven's eyes as these mass murderers are in ours. We are as repulsive in heaven's eyes as the Carroll family that killed Marcus Faisal is in Cincinnati's eyes. Heaven looks down at us with disdain and disbelief that we could act the way we act. And it must seem inexplicable to them 
that God is letting us off the hook. That God is preparing a place for us in heaven. That God is willing to call us his children. They must be utterly confused until, that is, they take one look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then they get it. They take one look at the broken body of Jesus, this one who is marred beyond recognition, and then they remember that the full, furious vengeance of God has been poured out fully on him so that there is no wrath left for God's people. On Jesus' back fell every lash of the whip that we deserve. And we deserve it. On Jesus' head crashed every blow that we deserve for our sins. In Jesus' cup was mixed the full measure of the wrath of God, and he drank it down to the dregs, the wrath that we deserved. In his flesh, he absorbed the everlasting torment of hell that we deserved on that cross. And because of this reason, God lets us go free. God is not unjust when he sets us free. God is not unjust when he sets the sons of Jacob free and gives them a blessing. Because his justice in full, loud, vicious measure was poured out on his only begotten son who willingly took it for us. Now before we close, we need to read chapter 36. So let me read it. To you. These are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basamoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basamoth bore Reuel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush. And Jalem and Korah, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Reuel, the son of Esau's wife, Basamoth. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kanaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, and Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basamoth. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush, and Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, and Chief Kanaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatan, Chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Eden. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, chief Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Shammah, chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Reuel in the land of Eden. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basamoth. 
These are the sons of Esau's wife, Aholibamah, chief Jeush, chief Jalem, chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anna and Dishan and Ezer and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan and Manahath and Ebal, Shepho and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. These are the children of Anna, Dishan and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdon and Eshbon and Ithron and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan and Zavon and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aran. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishan, Chief Azer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Eden before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Din-Habah. Then Bala died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, became king in his place. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of the city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth of the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, became king in his place. Then Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau, according to their families and their localities by their names, Chief Timna, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Aholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kanaz, Chief Teman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Some of you may be a little irritated with me right now because you think that it was pointless and worthless for me to spend those few minutes reading these names that you've never heard of and probably will never hear again unless you read Genesis on your own. So why did I read them? Why did I go through this list of names that are so difficult to pronounce and that we will never see again? Well, because God put them in the Bible and we're studying Genesis. And so I wanted to read every verse of Genesis as we study through. But then the question is, why did God put these verses in the Bible? Why this chapter full of people who really never show up again, most of them? Why is it important that we understand the genealogy of Esau and this other family that he intermarried with? I don't know all the reasons, but I will tell you that when I read this list of names, one thing strikes me. I know almost nothing about any of these characters. My job is to study the Bible, and I almost know nothing about these men. Their names don't roll off my tongue like the names of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph and Benjamin and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, the sons of Jacob. These became the tribes of Israel. We hear these names again and again in the Old Testament. I know these names. I know a little bit about these guys. But 
I don't know anything about Esau's sons. Why is that? Why don't I know anything about Esau's sons, but I know quite a bit about Jacob's sons? And why is it that you've probably never heard these names and didn't know how to pronounce them either? But you've heard of Jacob, and you've heard of Isaac, and you've heard of Abraham, and you've heard of his sons. Why is that? Well, the answer is because it was Jacob's family and not Esau who were God's chosen ones. It was Jacob's family and not Esau who were the children of the promise. Therefore, it is Jacob's family and not Esau's that has prominence in the rest of the Bible. This chapter, to me, is a reminder that these people are no names because God picked Jacob. Why did God pick Jacob? He doesn't tell us. He just says in Malachi, and it's repeated in Romans 9:13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's why we know so much more about Jacob's family than Esau, because God picked Jacob. It's important that we remember that as we draw to a close today. It's important that we remember God's choice of Jacob. Because it's clear from what we've read already that Jacob wasn't choosing God. And neither were his sons. We've studied Jacob's life life for the last two or three months now. And we've seen that Jacob was not looking for God. Jacob continually did things his own way, continually sinned against God. And here we see his sons doing the same thing. They are vengeful, they are selfish, they are murderous. In chapter 35, we, we read it but didn't comment on it. Reuben, verse 22, Reuben, one of Jacob's sons, goes in and sleeps with his stepmother. And as we read along in Genesis next spring, we're going to find out that these same 12 boys who carried out this atrocity against this city also sold their youngest brother into slavery. Their second youngest brother, I should say, into slavery. Joseph. These were not people who were choosing God. These were people who were choosing sin. And the only way that they were going to be saved is if God chose them in spite of themselves. And that's what the whole book of Genesis is about. That's what the whole book is about. God chose Abraham out of his whole family. Then God chose Isaac between Isaac and Ishmael. And now God chooses Jacob over Esau. And now God chooses Jacob's sons over Esau's sons. Not because of anything that they had done, but because God was sovereign. And it works the same way with each of us. We have talked at length about how we are born sinners. We are born depraved. We are born like sheep. Each one of us turning to our own way. Isaiah 53, 6. We did not come into the world looking... For God, we came into the world naturally bent away from God. And if God didn't seek us out before we sought him, we would never have sought him. And if God didn't choose us before we chose him, we would have never chosen him. We are just like the sons of Jacob. And this is the genius of the gospel. The genius of the gospel is that salvation is given to us absolutely free. We don't have to do anything to earn it. And as Anthony said a few weeks ago, God chose us not because of anything seen in us and not because of anything foreseen in us. If God had looked ahead and said, what is Jacob going to turn out like? He wouldn't have picked Jacob. If he looked at Jacob's sons and said, what are they going to turn out like? He wouldn't have picked them. They never do seem to get their act together all the way through the end of the book. God doesn't choose us because he sees something in us or because he foresees something in us. God doesn't choose us because of anything we have done. Romans 9.16, God says he doesn't choose us even because of our will or because of our works. 
So God is the only ultimate answer for why you and I are saved. Someone says to me, why are you saved? The answer is not ultimately because I understood the gospel or I accepted Jesus, I believed on Jesus, I repented of my sins, or I was baptized. I did all those things and I had to do all those things. Anyone who hasn't done those things hasn't understood the gospel and hasn't believed and isn't saved. But those aren't the ultimate answer for why I'm a Christian. The ultimate answer for why I'm a Christian, the ultimate answer for why I did repent and did believe, is because of what God has done. Why am I a Christian? God. It's the only answer. One word, simple answer. Why are you a Christian if you are? God. This is the whole lesson of Jacob's life. As we draw his life to a close this morning, the whole lesson of his life is the decision for whether or not an individual or a family becomes God's people belongs ultimately to God. And after studying Jacob and studying his sons and studying ourselves, we should thank God that that decision does come down only to God. Because if we are like Jacob's sons, and we've seen that we are, then we don't want to depend on our works or our willpower, but on God who shows mercy. So let me just ask you this morning one more time before we close up the life of Jacob. Have you met this God? Have you met the God who loves sinners in spite of themselves and chooses to save sinners in spite of themselves? Have you met the God who sent his one and only son to swallow down his wrath in your place? Have you met the God of Jacob? I really believe that as we've studied Genesis together, God has shown himself to some of you like you've never seen him before. And I also believe that as we've studied the book of Genesis, God has shown some of you yourselves like you've never seen before. And when you put those things together, and you see the mercy offered you in Jesus, you realize that it's time to put your faith in him. It's time to stop hiding behind a religious background like Jacob had. It's time to stop hiding behind... A religious act that you did one time like Jacob had done. He built this pillar to God and said, this is the house of God. Wasn't changed, though. It's time to stop hiding behind your supposed morality or good behavior or religious works. It's time this morning to let go of your pride. And to admit that you really need Jesus and that all you have is Jesus. It's time this morning to openly confess him. It's time to openly admit that apart from him, you can do nothing. It's time for everyone in this room to be sure that you have met, that you have truly met the only one who can rescue you from God's righteous and just wrath. His name is Jesus. And I pray that you have met him or that you will. Father, if we were to stand before you all this very moment and you were to every one of us send us to hell, we could not complain. Even one sin is a great enough offense against your holiness and your loving kindness for you to justly condemn us. 
We are guilty just as we would be if we were standing before a judge with a bloody weapon in our hand. We would have no excuses for ourselves, and we have no excuses for ourselves. But we have one plea that your son's blood was shed for us, that you poured out your wrath completely and fully and finally on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that for all those who trust in him, there is no wrath left. God, make us sure that that's what we're relying on. It's so easy for us to think that because we are here or because we've done this or because we've done that or because we're involved or because we know the right answers that everything must be okay, but in our hearts there's no peace. Let us be sure today that we have come to this Savior and that we are relying wholly on Him. Father, we ask you for those of us that know that we are relying wholly on him to give us joy. God, this has not been necessarily a happy message. We've seen ourselves, I pray, but give us joy as we hold up the dark backdrop that we've laid down today. Help us see the brightness and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we are sorrowful over our sins, but always rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.